Coming up on today's show, public pension plans have been in the news in Alberta on and off for a while now, and there's a lot of confusion about them. Dr. Timothy Caulfield will join us for a year-end review interview on misinformation. And we're seeing all kinds of new data about Omicron, and it always seems to get tamped down by the experts. Well, let's not get ahead of ourselves. There's been pension talk going on for quite some time in our province, and it came up again last week. Uh, Lots of discussion, lots of confusion, I think, about pensions in Alberta. And our next guest says the Premier is at least part of the reason for that confusion. So we're going to chat now with Dr. Bob Aska. Um, Bob is the former director of the Institute for Public Economics at the University of Alberta and a former Treasury Board employee. Um, Dr. Aska, thanks so much for your time this morning. I really appreciate you joining us. My pleasure, Shay. So we're talking about AIMCO primarily here, which of course is the Alberta Investment Management Corporation, the provincial pension plan, I guess is the way you describe it best, right? I mean, just give us an idea. It's huge. AIMCO is a big, big, big chunk of money. Yes, it is. And and it's uh, a little misleading to say it is the pension fund manager because it also manages um, the heritage fund as well as some other government funds. But uh, two-thirds of the money that AIMCO manages is a public sector pension plan uh, money, uh, including the $54 billion local authorities uh, pension plan. Now, part of the discussion and some of the confusion and what you talked about in your recent report was um, a news conference that came just last week where the Premier was asked about a report that you had written in terms of AIMCO. Um, and yes. he, he, t- he told reporters that, you know, AIMCO's done very well. It's done just as well as other uh, public pension plans over the last 10 years or so. You say that's not true. Well, it's um, it's it's misleading, really, because AIMCO, when you compare it with, in particular, the Alberta Teachers Retirement Fund, which they they now are managing, uh, showed but poorly over the last ten years compared to ATRF, and the the four year um, returns were one percent better for uh, ATRF. Uh, in the case of AIMCO compared with its provincial uh, peers like DC Investment Management, Case de Depot, um, Ontario Teachers, and Omers, yeah. um, AIMCO was only better than Omers. And, and really, only once during 10 years did they do as well as Ontario Teachers, which is, you know, the top performer. So, uh, I mean, it's speaking notes that the Premier was using, and AIMCO you know, uh, I think it's fair to say advances some of those uh, points, and um, but but that's certainly not the case. Um, another issue that you found with what he had to say, uh, you, the premier basically came out and said these are guaranteed funds in a way; they're they're, they're backed by the government. Yeah, it, it was just breathtaking the 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 comment by the premier. I was floored when I heard it. Uh, the reality is that over the last 30 years, the the officials in the Treasury Board um, and, and government ministers have worked very hard to disengage uh, that, that guarantee, uh, which, the, which the Premier seems to have uh, said um, exists. But there's nothing in the statutes that would... Uh, uh, would confirm that. Nor is uh, where the premier, I think, is a little confused. Is that there is 
some government liability for teachers uh, past service going back, I think it's in the 90s, before um, 96, I believe. So so other than that, I, I mean, it's just not true. And, you know, the article I put it made in the journal was, you know, if it, if he wants to change policy, I mean, it's a great gift, gift the Christmas gift for <laughs> uh, public sector workers. Um now, the other claim here, because there's been much fuss about whether or not the, the teacher's pension should be moved into AIMCO, um, the Premier says it'll save a lot of money. Administratively, it's going to save a lot of money. Well, you know, looking at that claim, uh, the administrative costs are only roughly $40 million of teachers. The rest, about 115 or so from last year's report, are investment management expenses. Now, he says it's $50 million. The AIMCO briefing was 41, but give give or take $10 million. But the, but the point is, I, I think it's very, very hard to even determine whether that's going to be true. And in the short term, there's going to be all kinds of transition costs of of lawyers and moving the assets over to the system that that are not insignificant. So that that claim really is um, is difficult to believe. <laughs> A very very interesting, Doctor Aska. Thank you so much for your time this morning and uh, helping us clarify some of those issues. I appreciate it. Okay, my pleasure, Shake. Bye. Thank you. That's Dr. Bob Aska, who is the former director of the Institute for Public Economics at the University of Alberta and a former Treasury Board employee. One thing that I have a grievance about, and and probably it's because of what I do, is... um, the fact that we reality and truth and facts are negotiable now, and they, they just don't apply in a lot of ways. Um, and I, I deal in the information business, so it, I deal with it every day. Another guy who deals with it every day is Dr. Timothy Caulfield. We've had him on the show many times. We're going to do a year in review in the world of misinformation and conspiracy theories and, and junk science. Uh, Dr. Caulfield, thank you for joining us. I appreciate your time today. Good morning. Um, any grievances you would like to air before we get started in the spirit of Festivus? Uh, I agree with you about the remixes. You yep. know, I, 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 I'm, I'm embarrassed to say my favorite song, my favorite one is Jingle Bell Rock, if only for that line, giddy up. Giddy up, giddy, giddy up. up. Jingle horse, <laughs> pick up your feet. Does it for me every time. Don't change it. Fair enough. All right. Um, end of the year, we're taking a look. And, you know, I mean, we, we've talked before about um, this whole junk science and, and all the rest of it. And I was trying to figure out how long you've been waging this war. And uh, your first book came out, what, almost 10 years ago now, right? Uh, that's right. Yeah, almost, you know what? Almost to the day. <laughs> to the day <laughs> a decade ago. Um, and, you know, and I was, I've been researching it. I was actually, you know, researching it decades before that. Yeah. Ago. Well, I'd say 15 years before that. So, yeah, I've been, I've been on it a long time. And I've never seen anything like the last year, which was even worse than the year before that. So it is an incredible time to be to be studying misinformation. Is this like peak misinformation era in all the time that you've been watching this? Like, I mean, we know it's always been around. There's always been conspiracy theories. There's always been junk science. There's always been snake oil salesmen. Is this the worst it's ever been, do you think? Yes. <laughs> I, don't, I don't even need to hesitate. Yes. 
but there is a, there's a good news aspect to it also. I, I think that um, people are taking it more seriously, right? So, yeah. you know, international entities are taking it more seriously, you know, from the UN to the World Health Organization. You know, national governments are taking it more seriously. You know, we had Biden just days ago saying, you know, that it was the issue, the spread of misinformation, right? Uh, so, you know, that's, that's good news. And the other good news is we're getting more research about it, about, you know, how it's spread and what we can do about it. So that's, you know, I, I'm, I'm a glass half full person. And yeah. I think that's, so that's good news. We'll get to that in a minute. First, though, uh, you know, I know you've taken on Gwyneth Paltrow and her website full of whacked out health tips. And, you know, th- th- that's sort of got a, a pop culture aspect to it. Dangerous in some ways, but it seems to me the level of danger and the level of the impact that it's having on people's health globally has changed uh, as a result of the pandemic and the misinformation around it pr- primarily. But it's not just a fun little, oh, this is a ridiculous thing to say. This is serious business now. Uh, that, that's right. When I first started studying it, it was kind of viewed that way, you know. And I actually even there was even some academics who said who would say, "Oh well, you know, why waste your time on this? It's just fun. People are just, you know, it's not it's benign." Yeah, yeah. No one's saying that anymore, right? No one is saying that anymore. People recognize that misinformation is killing people. That sounds like hyperbole, but it's not. Misinformation is killing people. We have, you know, evidence to back back that up. Uh, and it's not just in the context of vaccines. I think people think, okay, it's vaccines, but people are also, you know, they're taking, you know, they're drinking urine, <laughs> you know, yeah. they're, they're, they're taking ridiculous therapies that are actually hurting them. And, and there's been research that has even shown that it, it, there's situations where it's killed them, right? So uh, absolutely. And, and the other thing is that there's a more subtle, but almost more uh, dramatic impact that the spread of mis- misinformation has, I think, and that is just it erodes critical thinking skills. It, it polarizes our, our communities. It makes it more difficult for people to tease out what's real and, and not real, and that's a problem that we're going to be battling, I think, for decades. Any idea how it got to this point? I mean, that's the question that I have over and over. How did we get such a large group of the population, or has it always been this many? And it's just more because of social media that we hear about it, but where this, you've really got two competing realities in many instances. How did we get to this point? Well, I, I do think that you've already touched on one of the biggest engines, right? And, and it may seem obvious, but I think it, it's worth restating. Uh, social media, you know, it yeah. really is a big part of this story. Um, uh, not only because it gives people the ability to, to spread misinformation, right? So that, you know, the general public are the individuals who are spreading misinformation. And I'm not pointing fingers, right? It's a chaotic information environment. I totally get why that happens. Uh, but it also allows for the, the incredible polarization of our discussions, right? And, and really interesting research has backed that up. You know, the more polarized a point of view the more likely it is to get spread, right? And, and so we're seeing that happen all the time. And that ties to, I think, another really, really important trend. And we've seen this play out over, over 2021. And, and that is the, the degree to which misinformation has become about ideology. And, yes. you know, there's this basket of beliefs that you're supposed to embrace if you're part of a particular ideological community. And that has both allowed misinformation to spread, but I think it also makes misinformation more sticky, right? So if you're a particular, in a particular community, you believe ivermectin works, no, it doesn't. You believe in natural immunity over vaccines, not true. You believe in, uh, maybe vaccines don't even work, right? You know, you believe that masks don't work. This is basket of beliefs that you're supposed to embrace. And unfortunately, uh, that is a very effective way to spread misinformation. 
Who does it, though? That's the thing. Because you're right. If you, I mean, and people will yell at me for saying this because I've said it before and they will. I can tell who you vote for based on whether or not you're vaccinated or how you feel about COVID, right? I know who you're, you know, we, it's, it's wrapped up into that political ideology. Is it politicians? Is it media? Uh, how did that happen, that, that marriage of the two? Well, you know, that's fascinating, and you're 100% correct what you just said, and there was a study that came out um, early November, Angus Reid, that looked at, you know, who, of those who are still hardcore deniers, you know, they're saying, we are not going to get vaccinated, it's almost entirely on the political right. And I want to be careful here. I'm not pointing fingers at ideology. You know, it's important to have a spectrum of ideologies in any liberal democracy, right? Uh, But that's just the way it's played out in the context uh, of COVID, um, almost entirely on the political right. And and I think what's happened, if you look at the story of ivermectin, it's a really good example, right, where, you know, there were some interesting studies in the laboratory that suggested antiviral, and there were some observational studies, and then it was embraced by the political right, you know, from Trump to you know, Joe Rogan to, uh, you know, Aaron Rodgers. And, and it became part of the package of beliefs that if you're part of this community, this is what you're supposed to believe. And it also became tied to the anti-vax rhetoric because the, the narrative that they were pushing was therapies are being, you know, underrepresented because they want to push vaccines. It's not, none of it's true, but it became a compelling narrative if you were part of that ideological community. Uh, and therefore, it, took, it takes off. Um, are you familiar with Tom Nichols and his writing? Uh, yes, yeah. Now, his book, Death of Expertise, and a lot of this, that's what it is. It's the death of expertise, the rejection of accepted common knowledge and understood facts. Um, and he wrote that, you know, a pandemic, for example, long before there was a pandemic even on the horizon, would be the kind of thing that gives us a reset where we say, you know what? I don't know what I'm talking about. I should sit down and listen to the people who do. Clearly, that hasn't worked. It's gone in the other direction. What changes this? What gets us back to the place where we can have an accepted, agreed-upon reality? Um, that's a terrific book, by the way. Um, I, I think that it is. There, this is going to sound obvious, <laughs> but there is, there is good evidence that we can teach critical thinking skills and that teaching those skills will, will have an impact. Right. So uh, it's not just about telling people to listen to ex- experts because, you know, blind faith in experts is also not what sure. you want. Right. Yeah. You want to have people. Yes. I think it's important to recognize who's an expert and who spent time studying something and why their voice might have more credibility. But you also want to teach those basic critical thinking skills. And there's been studies even with even with, uh, you know, young kids. There was a study in, in Africa and Uganda of 11 year old kids. They taught them critical thinking skills. They were able to apply it. And the most importantly, Shay, it made a difference. Right, it really did make a difference in how they view their information environment. Uh, teaching media literacy um, and, and yes, even teaching huge. things like recognizing that social media is a, is a frantic information space, and you've got to pause. Right, I mean, there's really interesting research by people like Gordon Pennycook at the University of Regina, who found exactly that. You know, if you can just nudge people to pause and sort of embrace accuracy, they're less likely to believe misinformation and spread misinformation. So there are definitely strategies that we can deploy that will make a difference. But I do think education is core. Yeah, and uh, you work hard at it every single day, and I respect you for it, and I appreciate you doing it, Doc. Thanks so much for your time, as always. Thanks for having me on, and and happy Festivus to everyone. (laughs) Happy Festivus and Merry Christmas, Dr. Caulfield. Thank you. Bye-bye. That's Dr. Timothy Caulfield who um, is a University of Alberta professor in health law and policy and a Canada Research Chair in health law and policy.
one thing that I have a grievance about, and, and probably it's because of what I do, is um, the fact that we reality and truth and facts are negotiable now, and they, they just don't apply in a lot of ways. Um, and I, I deal in the information business, so it, I deal with it every day. Another guy who deals with it every day is Dr. Timothy Caulfield. We've had him on the show many times. We're going to do a year in review in the world of misinformation and conspiracy theories and and junk science. Uh, Dr. Caulfield, thank you for joining us. I appreciate your time today. Good morning. Um, any grievances you would like to air before we get started in the spirit of Festivus? Uh, I agree with you about the remixes. You yep. know, I, 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 I'm, I'm embarrassed to say my favorite song, my favorite one is Jingle Bell Rock, if only for that line, giddy up. Giddy up, giddy, giddy up. up, jingle horse, pick up your feet. <laughs> Does it for me every time, don't change it. Fair enough. All right. Um, end of the year, we're taking a look. And, you know, I mean, we, we've talked before about um, this whole junk science and, and all the rest of it. And I was trying to figure out how long you've been waging this war. And uh, your first book came out, what, almost 10 years ago now, right? Uh, that's right. Yeah, almost. You know what? Almost to the day, <laughs> a decade ago, um, and you know, I was I've been researching it. I was actually you know researching it decades before that. Yeah. I, well, I'd say fifteen years before that. So yeah, I've been I've been on it a long time, and I've never seen anything like the last year, which was even worse than the year before that. So it is an incredible time to be to be studying misinformation. Is this like peak misinformation era in all the time that you've been watching this? Like, I mean, we know it's always been around. There's always been conspiracy theories. There's always been junk science. There's always been snake oil salesmen. Is this the worst it's ever been, do you think? Yes. <laughs> I, don't, I don't even need to hesitate. Yes. But there is a, there's a good news aspect to it also. I, I think that um, people are taking it more seriously, right? So, yeah. you know, international entities are taking it more seriously, you know, from the UN to the World Health Organization. You know, national governments are taking it more seriously. You know, we had Biden just days ago saying, you know, that it was the issue, the spread of misinformation, right? Uh, so, you know, that's, that's good news. And the other good news is we're getting more research about it, about, you know, how it's spread and what we can do about it. So that's, you know, I'm, I'm a glass half full person. And yeah. I think that's, so that's good news. We'll get to that in a minute. First, though, uh, you know, I know you've taken on Gwyneth Paltrow and her website full of whacked out health tips. And, you know, th- th- that's sort of got a, a pop culture aspect to it. Dangerous in some ways. But it seems to me the level of danger and the level of the impact that it's having on people's health globally has changed uh, as a result of the pandemic and the misinformation around it primarily. But it's not just a fun little, oh, this is a ridiculous thing to say. This is serious business now. Uh, that, that's right. When I first started studying it, it was kind of viewed that way, you know. And I actually even there was even some academics who said who would say, "Oh well, you know, why waste your time on this? It's just fun. People are just, you know, it's not it's benign." Yeah, yeah. No one's saying that anymore, right? No one is saying that anymore. People recognize that misinformation is killing people. That sounds like hyperbole, but it's not. Misinformation is killing people. We have, you know, evidence to back back that up. Uh, and it's not just in the context of vaccines. I think people think, okay, it's vaccines, but people are also, you know, they're taking, you know, they're drinking urine, <laughs> you know, yeah, they're, they're, they're taking ridiculous therapies that are actually hurting them. And, and there's been research that has even shown that it, it, there's situations where it's killed them, right? So uh, absolutely. And, and the other thing is that there's a more subtle, but almost more uh, dramatic impact that the spread of mis- misinformation has, I think, and that is just it erodes critical thinking skills. It, it polarizes our, our communities. It makes it more difficult for people to tease out what's real and, and not real, and that's a problem that we're going to be battling, I think, for 
for decades. Any idea how it got to this point? I mean, that's the question that I have over and over. How did we get such a large group of the population? Or has it always been this many? And it's just more because of social media that we hear about it. But where this, you've really got two competing realities in many instances. How did we get to this point? Well, I, I do think that you've already touched on one of the biggest engines, right? And, and it may seem obvious, but I think it, it's worth restating. Uh, social media, you know, it yeah. really is a big part of this story. Um, uh, not only because it gives people the ability to, to spread misinformation, right? So that, you know, the general public are the individuals who are spreading misinformation. And I'm not pointing fingers, right? It's a chaotic information environment. I totally get why that happens. Uh, but it also allows for the, the incredible polarization of our discussions, right? And, and really interesting research has backed that up. You know, the more polarized a point of view the more likely it is to get spread, right? And, and so we're seeing that happen all the time. And that ties to, I think, another really, really important trend. And we've seen this play out over, over 2021. And, and that is the, the degree to which misinformation has become about ideology. And, yes. you know, there are these basket of beliefs that you're supposed to embrace if you're part of a particular ideological community. And that has both allowed misinformation to spread, but I think it also makes misinformation more sticky, right? So if you're a particular, in a particular community, you believe ivermectin works. No, it doesn't. You believe in natural immunity over vaccines. Not true. You believe in... Uh, yeah, maybe vaccines don't even work, right? You know, you believe that masks don't work. This is basket of beliefs that you're supposed to embrace. And unfortunately, uh, that is a very effective way to spread misinformation. Who does it, though? That's the thing. Because you're right. If you, I mean, and I, I, people will yell at me for saying this, because I've said it before and they will. I can tell who you vote for based on whether or not you're vaccinated or how you feel about COVID, right? I know who you're, you know, we, it's, it's wrapped up into that political ideology. Is it politicians? Is it media? Uh, how did that happen, that, that marriage of the two? Well, you know, that's fascinating, and you're 100% correct what you just said, and there was a study that came out um, early November, Angus Reid, that looked at, you know, who, of those who are still hardcore deniers, you know, they're saying, we are not going to get vaccinated, it's almost entirely on the political right. And I want to be careful here. I'm not pointing fingers at ideology. You know, it's important to have a spectrum of ideologies in any liberal democracy, right? Uh, But that's just the way it's played out in the context uh, of COVID, um, almost entirely on the political right. And, And I think what's happened, if you look at the story of ivermectin, it's a really good example, right, where, you know, there were some interesting studies in the laboratory that suggested antiviral, and there were some observational studies, and then it was embraced by the political right, you know, from Trump to you know, Joe Rogan to, uh, you know, Aaron Rodgers. And, and it became part of the package of beliefs that if you're part of this community, this is what you're supposed to believe. And it also became tied to the anti-vax rhetoric because the, the narrative that they were pushing was therapies are being, you know, underrepresented because they want to push vaccines. It's not, none of it's true, but it became a compelling narrative if you were part of that ideological community. Uh, and therefore, took, it takes off. Um, are you familiar with Tom Nichols and his writing? Uh, yes, yeah. Now, his book, Death of Expertise, and a lot of this, that's what it is. It's the death of expertise, the rejection of accepted common knowledge and understood facts. Um, and he wrote that, you know, a pandemic, for example, long before there was a pandemic even on the horizon, would be the kind of thing that gives us a reset where we say, you know what? I don't know what I'm talking about. I should sit down and listen to the people who do. Clearly, that hasn't worked. It's gone in the other direction. What changes this? What gets us back to the place where we can have an accepted, agreed-upon reality? 
Um, that's a terrific book, by the way. Um, I, I think that it is there. This is going to sound obvious, but there is there is good evidence that we can teach critical thinking skills, and that teaching those skills will will have an impact. Right. So, uh, it's not just about telling people to listen to experts because you know blind faith in experts is also not what sure. you want. Right. Yeah. You want to have people. Yes, I think it's important to recognize who's an expert and who spent time studying something and why their voice might have more credibility. But you also want to teach those basic critical thinking skills. And there's been studies even with. Even with, uh, you know, young kids, there was a study in, in Africa, in Uganda, of 11-year-old kids. They taught them critical thinking skills. They were able to apply it. And then most importantly, Shay, it made a difference, right? It really did make a difference in how they viewed their information environment. Uh, teaching media literacy. Um, and and yes, even teaching huge. things like recognizing that social media is a, is a frantic information space and you've got to pause, right? I mean, there's really interesting research by people like Gordon Pennycook at the University of Regina who found exactly that. You know, if you can just nudge people to pause and sort of embrace accuracy, they're less likely to believe misinformation and spread misinformation. So there are definitely strategies that we can deploy that will make a difference. But I do think education is core. Yeah, and uh, you work hard at it every single day, and I respect you for it, and I appreciate you doing it. Doc, thanks so much for your time, as always. Thanks for having me on, and and happy Festivus to everyone. (laughs) Happy Festivus and Merry Christmas, Dr. Caulfield. Thank you. Bye-bye. That's Dr. Timothy Caulfield who um, is a University of Alberta professor in health law and policy and a Canada Research Chair in health law and policy. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favourite podcasts. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us.